Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Guys, before today's podcast, we've got actually a special offer from Fresh Clinics. Yes, the boys at Fresh, John and John, are at it again. Yes. So if you haven't heard and you're based in Australia, I guess you could be coming from international as well. Yeah. You're always welcome to fly in. Uh, Fresh Clinics are holding their first, what they're calling their first aesthetics festival. Sounds exciting. What's it called? Fresh Fresh Life. Yes. And that starts in Brisbane on September the 6th till the 9th, so three days. Yep. Um, I will be there. Uh, They've asked me to do a talk on uh, my first experience experiences with ultrasound mm, and I'll be doing some stuff with Allegan but it's a great thing because all of the pharma companies are involved multiple speakers international speakers and it's going to be slightly different to your average conference yeah lots of breakout rooms and mini um, sort of bespoke uh, meetings and talks and it's all about what they call the nursepreneur the nurse entrepreneur. Yeah. Well, we've seen that the rise of that in the last few years with what John and John have done with their, their fresh app in terms of allowing um, nurses to be able to get the oversight and uh, scripting from doctors basically anywhere in the world. Well, they've just opened up in the United States, but obviously certainly in Australia, they've done an, a great job of making this type of support accessible. Yes. So we've got a special offer. So thank you to John and John for donating this. They've got five <laughs> free tickets to give away. Which are valued at $800 each. Yes. It's 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 uh, it's very generous. Um, the way to apply, we're going to keep it super, super simple. So if you're listening to this podcast, there'll already be a post on our uh, Instagram, which is Inside Aesthetics Podcast. It'll be very obvious because it'll be the Fresh Life logo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all we want you to do is tag yourself and four of your nurse injector friends. So you'll obviously you have to all be injectors. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we will pass on those details to the boys at Fresh and they can choose who they think should be a winner. So maybe get creative with what you leave yeah. in your comments. Tell Surprise us why us. you should come. Yeah, absolutely. So apply. Great offer. Great opportunity. And you're really going to like this podcast with Professor Sebastian Cotofana. Enjoy, guys. So how have you been, mate? What, what's been happening? What have you been up to? Um, I'm um, I'm a little bit busy these days because um, semester starting at the beginning of sem- of September. Yes. And um, the semester is always really busy, and especially because the during the semester I have no time for research. Yeah. And because it's just majorly student focused, everything is on the students. And uh, when the semester finishes, then it's October. Yeah. And if you intend to submit any papers to a journal by the end of October, it will not appear this year. Yeah. So whatever I want to have appeared this year online, I need to submit, write and prepare before my semester starts. Yeah. I don't know how you do it because, you know, you're constantly at obviously all the conferences, you're supporting a lot of the pharma companies with your anatomy teaching and I, I can't keep up with it. Like, you know, I go to one conference, go back to work and I'm exhausted. So I, I don't know how you do it and, and, and juggle your professor role and all the stuff that you're doing. Like, what, what's your diary normally like week to week? So I have to admit that um, 
that it's it's not an easy lifestyle. But um, but first of all, I'm um, I like what I do, and second, I um, I'm kind of used to it. So so how my normal day looks like. And the funny thing is, you know, everybody thinks like, oh, he's a professor of anatomy. He spends all day in the lab, all day dissecting. What the crap? I never do that. Honestly, I don't do research projects with dissecting myself. I'm in the lab only when I have to dissect for students, which is once a year for the semester and the rest of the time, I'm never in the lab. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to stay away from this as much as I can because um, I, I don't do these hands-on dissection and research projects anymore because they're outdated. I mean, you need to, you need to do clinical research and this is what I'm doing. So yeah. um, to, to your question, it's kind of like how my normal day looks like. So normally I get up between four and five in the morning. Wow. And um, because my first meetings starts already around six, I have my first meetings because when I'm here at six, it's um, already past noon in Europe. Yes. And most of my colleagues and collaborators are in Europe. So kind of, I want to catch their day as much as I can. And um, and so my day sounds around, sounds around between five and six with the first meetings. And then um, I uh, either have the meetings or then starting at eight, my Mayo regular stuff goes on. So that means I have to take care of my Mayo things because at Mayo, apart from being a professor, I'm also the medical director of the clinical anatomy laboratory where all of the anatomical activities take care, take care and happen. And I'm also the medical director of the Mayo Clinic body donation program. Mm, okay. So for this, I also need to take care of these things, which is kind of my regular job. And um, this kind of is throughout the day with meetings and, um, and with research. And at some point um, in the afternoons, then I have um, transmissions or conferences or webinars or other things that I have to attend. And then it kind of goes on. For instance, um, after we finish today, I still have to give a two-hour lecture to Chile with this from seven to nine. And then normally then my day starts around, stops around that time. So it's kind of like a I mean, you know it. I mean, you know how it is. You know, you yeah. do the same thing. Well, COVID must have been brilliant for you because suddenly, you know, you can do all this stuff virtually. Whereas before COVID, we weren't really doing too much of this. And yet, even for the podcast, this has opened up so many doors yeah. for us because it doesn't matter. You're in, uh, you know, Minneapolis and we're having a chat in and Sydney. it's perfect sound quality. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. Honestly, for me personally, the, the pandemic um, was a blessing. Um, I was never as productive as during that time. And it really opened up the virtual world for me. And having this virtual world open up, it kind of shows me that I can reach the scientific community without having to travel all the time. And um, it really opened up a lot of time because now instead of having to travel to the airport, I can be at home and work on research and get things done, which is, I think, a good thing. But also this virtual thing and the pandemic made um, my calendar substantially more and more busy because now you don't have to fly for meetings. You just do meeting back to back, back to back. And because you're connected to everyone around the world and you know this also very well, it's kind of like you have to account for the different time zones. Yeah. So one of the first things in, in the meetings is kind of like, which time zone are you in? And then from there you get to meeting on. Yeah, we, we've got a great app called Time Buddy. If anyone's yeah. listening and, and they're trying to schedule meetings in different countries, it just you know, it shows you the different cities, you choose the cities and it just lines them up. So works well, works well. Well, most of the time we've we, had should, a, we should get sponsorship from them. We've yeah, we them should. 
we definitely should. <laughs> Sebastian, I wanted to ask you, I, in fact, I want to clear up some rumours, and this is quite yeah. funny. Um, we, we always put um, questions out to our listeners to see, you know, if they've got any questions for you, and people want to know about your background. So <laughs> people have asked, is it true that he's a vampire? <laughs> is it true that he's a vet? Um, is it true that, you know, all this kind of stuff, but y your background is that you're a medical doctor. You went to medical school and you became a doctor, correct? Yeah, that is correct. I went to medical school in, in Germany, in Munich, in the most beautiful city of the world yeah. for me. I mean, yeah. you would say the same thing about city, which I totally get that. <laughs> but, um, I went, I went to medical school in Munich, um, did, uh, MD PhD program. And, um, I finished medical school and, um, just a couple of, Months later, I also finished my first PhD, which was in medical sciences in the subject of Crohn's disease, right. Right. Gast gastroenterology. That was kind of my first PhD. And um, my idea was always, I want to do surgery. I want to be a trauma surgeon. I want to really do hands-on, like, blah, I want to really be one of the cool guys. <laughs> And <laughs> yeah, honestly, and, uh, and it was, it was, it was really nice because, um, after finishing medical school, I said, okay, how can I be a really good trauma surgeon? And when I talked to many of them, they said, well, you need to really know very well anatomy. And, uh, I said, okay, it's fine. So after medical school, because I bred a pretty young, um, I said, okay, for the next two years, I'm just going to anatomy, do two years of anatomy. And, um, this is what I did. I did immediately after medical school, I did, um, anatomy and, um, and after two years of anatomy, I said, okay, good, I'm done. <laughs> Enough of anatomy. Now it's time for trauma surgery. And I went to trauma surgery back into Germany. And then I continued trauma surgery. It was amazing. It was really amazing time. I really loved that time. I miss a lot of the procedures and I still do miss those procedures. And at some point, um, you know, when, when, when you're doing trauma surgery, it's, it's really nice. You get into this lifestyle of, uh, you don't count for when it's day or night or weekends you work all the time, yeah, which is great. I mean, I love that you're young, you have to do this. And, um, and after, after a certain time, I got an email from my previous boss from anatomy. He said, Hey, don't you want to do your professorship within the next uh, two years? And that was at the age of uh, 30. Wow. And I was thinking, yeah, Oh right. my goodness. Yeah, like Doogie <laughs> Hauser. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Honestly, it was like, wow, what an amazing thing. And I was thinking, okay, will I continue here, uh, in trauma surgery? And, uh, and, and the funny thing was at that time I had a supervisor who, um, who preferred to perform surgery with females as assistants. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. You I mean, were stuck. It's okay. It's totally fine. Yeah. You could, you could um, have had a shave and put some high heels on. It would have, <laughs> might've worked. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I could have done that. But the problem is he also sees you um, on the ward when you take care of the patient and he realized, oh, you're not a female. So yeah. it's like, mm. interesting. And, and, and then it was somehow the, the separation between kind of like, okay, the girls to the OR and the boys are standing on the ward, taking blood samples, doing the letters and doing all of these things. And after a while I was thinking, honestly, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life here, not learning and having to do those things. And, and then, I, and, Exactly in that time, that email came from my boss uh, from uh, from Austria, from from Anatomy. I said, "Okay, guys, I want to do my professorship, and then we're going to see. We're going to revisit that thing." And I went back, and during that time, I completed my second PhD, which was in Anatomy. Again, first one medical science, the second one in Anatomy, and the subject of the second one was uh, um, was neoosteoarthritis. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, 
<laughs> and um and then during that time i started um doing my own research project i got into contact with facial anatomy and then somehow i just did not return i did not go back to trauma surgery so i stayed so um to everybody who says oh is he a vet no he's an md regular md with two phds who did all of this and to the first question is he a vampire um <laughs> He actually is because I'm born in Transylvania. I there told you. Go. I thought that was just a rumor, but I, I was pretty sure it was true. <laughs> right. There you go. And you're up at four in the morning. So it's all, it's all, it's all coming together now. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true, actually. But I love garlic. Okay. Ah, there you go. So um, you've said you're not sort of in the laboratory doing dissection and, and sort of all, of all of that type of thing. So what does a typical day look like for you when you're not sort of traveling or lecturing? What, what does the clinical research that you're doing on, on a day-to-day basis actually look like? So there are, um, so my, my, my normal way of, of approaching those things and doing those research projects is um, either I get inspiration from colleagues from the clinical field, like, hey, can you have a look at this? Can you have a look at this or look at that? And then you think about the research question and you try to design that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you design that research question, you design the project. And then what I do normally, I collaborate with a lot of people around the world. And I have research groups everywhere. I mean, I work very closely with um, with the group in the Netherlands with um, who do ultrasound. Um, I will have a research group in China. I have a research group in, in Russia and in Moscow. I have a research group in Brazil. But my core is still in Germany, in Munich. And um, when we have these research questions, I reach out to them. I send them the proposal, the protocol. We design the study. And then they do the study. And once they complete, they send the completed Excel spreadsheet back to me. And this is where kind of my day starts. I'm compiling the um, the statistics for the statistical program. I do the statistics and then I start writing the paper. And this is what I do actually most of um, my time. I'm just compiling the data, writing the papers and collaborating with research projects, kind of identifying kind of um, the questions what to do. And um, if you'd like, I can just tell you just a recent example of what I'm currently working on, but I don't want to interrupt the flow. No, here. please go, go tell us. So um you know you know a couple of years ago I think it was in 2015 the first time when the paper came out where everybody said you need to constantly move the needle within the tissue to decrease the risk mm. of injecting into the artery and the product. Yes and this is a very Australian topic yeah. as you well know because of the authors of a number of papers. I am aware of that um but the thing is is it's about constantly moving the needle in a tissue while you apply the product. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the events that you do before you apply the product oh, okay. with this pre-injection. This, this word that is not very popular in Australia, I get that. <laughs> okay. Which is called aspiration, yeah, yeah, yeah. by the way. <laughs> so um, the, the, the thing is, um, we all know this thing, kind of this, everybody says, oh, you need to constantly move the needle within a tissue to decrease the risk, blah, blah. So um, I was... I never believed in that theory. So what I did, I sent out an email to my research group in um, in, in China and in the Netherlands and Brazil and even in, in Canada. And I asked them, hey guys, um, do you know someone who can perform these fancy statistical models to compute something like this? And, um, and no one had any clue. But just recently, um, and that was um, two weeks ago, um, a very young mathematician from the Russian MIT in Moscow got back to me and said, hey, I have an idea. So we went on to Zoom, had a couple of meetings, 
And now he's starting to computing mathematical models of which I have no clue. And especially when he showed me how they look like, I had no idea, but he tried to explain me. And I told him, please explain this like you would explain this to a baby. <laughs> and then finally I understood what he said. And now we're working on this project and he's still computing some models because one account for different factors. And once this is done, I will write a paper based on his analysis. He's going to be the first author. I'm going to be the last author. And this is how we kind of work on helping patients and clinicians in the long term. That's fantastic. Can you actually just explain the hierarchy of authorship? I think some people don't understand first author, last author. What, what does that mean on a paper? Yeah, that's an, that's an excellent question. So um, when, when it comes to, to the authorship of a paper, um, there, there are many, many times and many cases where not only one author, where there are multiple authors on that paper. And the sequence of authors depends on the different roles and scopes and duties that you do with a paper. So normally, um, the author who has the idea and who carries the responsibility for that whole project and coordinates that project, that person is the senior author, the person who is on the last position. And on the first position is normally that co-author or clinical colleague who does most of the work and writes the manuscript. And that is kind of the first author and the last author. And when, for instance, when you look for academic contributions, everybody asks you, how many papers did you have in first or last authorship position? Yes. Because these are kind of the two positions that count. But sometimes what you see is that you have um, behind the first author, even before the last author, little asterisks and says contributed equally. Yes. And that means you contributed equally with either the first or with the last author. And then the credits also go to that person who has the asterisk. Yeah, it's important because, you know, on your papers, sometimes you've got 10, 15 people. Uh, like you said, they're probably sharing the load in, in, in a research lab in Serbia or something. And, uh, you know, it kind of looks like the guy who's fifth didn't do as much as the guy at first, but probably <laughs> not true. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the authors that are listed are those who significantly contributed to the research project to writing of the manuscript and to finally approve um, the manuscript for submission. Yeah. And um, for instance, um, a statistician of, of a paper or a clinical paper cannot be first author because the statistician, the statistician just did the stats. Yes. He did nothing else. He just did the stats, supported the stats. But writing of the paper, compiling the idea and putting the stats, which says the numbers into clinical context, that's not his scope, that's not his expertise. But he still is uh, one of the co-authors and contributors and crucial contributors. Yeah, perfect. Now, I'm aware that we're slightly time limited, so I'm going to jump straight into the main topic <laughs> of the day. And we're going to do a slightly different podcast today. We're, um, we're going to look at some of your um, sort of better known papers and publications that you've mm -hmm. done. And we're just going to sort of, you know, dissect them. Oh, well, there See you what go. I did there? Oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. That's something that David that's, that's a dad does. Joke. It's yeah. contagious. Um, yeah. And so we'll just, you know, we'll just, you know, talk about your papers. Because I think it's relevant. Obviously, injectors around the world have listened or, or, or read 
some of these and it might have changed people's practice or they may have read it and not fully understand you know the the conclusion so if that's all right with you sebastian we'll get into some of your papers so i thought the first one this one's really simple even david can understand <laughs> this one <laughs> this one's called to click or not to click the importance of understanding the layers of the forehead when injecting neuromodulators um you did this in i think it's published in 2020 and the mm -hmm. premise is really, really simple. But can you just tell us, you know, why did you decide to look at this? What, what, what was the reason you decided to look at the depth of injecting toxin in a forehead? Um, don't you like the title? I love it. Yes. I thought it's great. Yeah, to click or not to click. I'm right? a clicker, from, by the way. I've always what been. What does that mean, actually? So, well, my, my interpretation is to touch the bone or not to touch the bone. Right. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I, I I choose the title because, of course, I love Shakespeare, and yeah. uh, and I think it was it was just a, a a nice touch to this because I feel scientific papers are normally so boring. Honestly, mm. you read them and you fall asleep even before reaching the abstract. You know, when you reach the titles and you have this long title, like, oh my goodness, honestly, I, I'm not even interested in reading that. Yeah, and this is why I'm I try to play with a different title. And what the title actually says is. Um, to touch the bone or not to touch the bone. But the thing here is not fact, fact that you have to touch the bone. It's kind of to go deep or to stay superficial. Yes. And and when you advance your needle and penetrate through the different layers of the forehead, then at some point you hear an acoustic phenomenon when the needle tip passes through the subfrontalis fascia. And this can be understood as a click or a crunch or whatever, you, however you want to describe this acoustic phenomenon yeah uh, but why did you do that paper i mean what you know what led to you deciding oh we've got to do a paper on this so when um when i mean the the toxin market will increase and it will expand within the next years mm -hmm. i mean it already started with um with the fourth toxin being on the market the fifth is coming soon and the sixth is also already in the plan so it, it will increase it will just increase the variety of toxins available which I think is great because it also it 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 just kind of revitalizes the market. Yeah. yeah. And um, and um, with that, when you especially look at at forehead injections with neuromodulators, um, in the community was yeah. Sometimes you go a little bit deeper. Sometimes you go a little bit more superficial. And there was always the question: yeah, which one is more effective? And some some physicians say, oh yeah, superficially is great. Deep is bad. And the others say, oh deep is good. Superficial is bad. So it's kind of like. Okay, 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 let's do one. So we did, um, together with my research group in Serbia, um, in collaboration with the university in Belgrade, for which I'm a visiting professor. Mm -hmm. And um, and we just se separated the forehead in two halves, left and right. And then it was injected with the same toxin, same dosage, same points. But the only difference was one side was superficial, the other side was deep. And um, and. And then we looked at um, day 14 and day 30, um, how the outcome is. And the interesting thing is at rest, when you don't move, when you just look at, at the wrinkles at rest, there was no difference. Yeah. So superficial and deep, everything was perfect. And and here comes now the, the new understanding of anatomy with, I just recently said in one of my posts, it's, it's the fourth dimension. Mm. It doesn't mean left or right or deep, which means the third dimension kind of the depth. It also is over time and over time in a phase includes movements. So you need to perform, I mean, 
you know this very well. You need to perform dynamic analysis of all of the outcomes that you do, especially also for neuromodulators. And this is why when we did the assessment, it was not only at rest, but also under maximum contraction. And under maximum contraction, we saw a difference, statistically significant difference, where the superficial side could already start to move a little bit, whereas the deep side was still totally blocked. Yeah. And this resulted us in conclude that um, the deep injections are more efficacious. And in other words, you just get more bang for the buck. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it seems pretty, to me, obvious. I've I've always gone deep. I don't know who taught me. I can't remember. But when I came to Australia, there were a lot of injectors and, and mm. I noticed it um, with injectors that I've just trained or come across. They, they do these little blebs, these little blisters of toxin in the forehead. And I was like, why are you doing that? Like, th that's not where the muscle is. That's the skin. And, and the subcutaneous tissue. And they said, oh no, works great. And my patients are happy. And that was the end of it. And then when I saw your paper a few years ago, I was like, ah, okay, we've actually got someone looking at this properly. Um, and yeah. I loved it because I was mm. right. <laughs> so, Yeah, because the forehead is such a, is such a um, I wouldn't say it's a difficult area to treat, but it, it's, a, it's an area that tends to have a lot of controversy around how much you're, you know, what, what, what injecting points you're using, people that say that one product works better than the other, um, you know, it, it, you know, it's an area that has a lot of consequence on the face if you get it wrong in terms of dropping brows and so oh, on. So sure. if we can use something like this to make the results more consistent, it's well, fantastic. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if you know, Sebastian, David used to own multiple clinics where he was the owner of the clinics. And the relevance of this is you get patients coming back yeah. complaining saying the stuff didn't work or you get these injectors saying it's a bad batch, it didn't work. I, I, I need to speak to you know the yeah. company and get mm -hmm. free, free toxin back because it didn't work. And all this stuff comes out and you're like, no, no, I'm sure this is a technique-related thing or a dose thing. It's not just technique. Mm. So I, I think it's highly relevant. But the other thing I was thinking is in the patients who, who are quite heavy-lidded with, with a low brow to start with, but you know they, they do have significant wrinkles, you could actually use this to your benefit and, and deliberately do a low dose of superficial wrinkles to get some effect but not a full effect. So it's interesting. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I thought it was a great paper. It's nice and simple. Mm -hmm. I do have one criticism. <laughs> Why do you always choose such a low case number in your papers? I mean, joking aside, I know, I know that if you had the time and the resources, you'd have a thousand cases and, and you'd do more. But 14 is a low number. So what, why did you choose 14 patients in that paper? Um, I did not choose it a priori. It was um, it was a clinical study in which the patients were just included in the regular treatments, and we followed them up. I see. And I see. and and this study was not industry funded. It was not right. industry funded. So it means the products utilized, the patients calling, patients coming back in, documenting all of this was done by the clinical center. Um, which participated, and of course, this is why um, it's just a different sample size when you have the large clinical studies of course they do a priori sample size calculation and they have their numbers that they needed to treat to achieve the certain outcome that they want to show yeah but um these studies are just you know like like daily life studies kind of like how you normally treat and how you do this this is why um the sample is always so small and i do agree larger sample would be better but i mean it's confirmatory. It's confirmatory yeah. what everybody already knows. Yes. So it's kind of like if it works in 14, it might more be most likely that it works in 25 and 30 as well. 
Yeah, mm. no, that's fair enough. And it's actually really important to, to stress it was non-pharma funded because, you know, as soon as you read a paper that is pharma funded, you kind of go, oh, whatever, yeah. forget well, yeah. it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because they're the ones with all the money to be able to fund these studies with thousands and thousands of people. But there's obviously an outcome that they're looking for. You know, you hear certain things around what, med what you know, what, what conclusions are published, which ones aren't. So, yeah, it's, it's like we don't have a solution to it yet. We need to be able to, as an industry, do these independent studies with huge case numbers so that they're completely, you know, with, beyond reproach or without question. Yeah, well, what do you think, Sebastian? You're, you're, you're the <coughs> professor of anatomy. You're writing prodigious a number of papers. How how do you get the funding to to get unbiased, you know, important research out there? Who is funding this stuff? Um. 90% of my studies are not funded. Wow. Right. They are just they're just done by the goodwill of the participating clinical centers mm -hmm. and in in academia it's done by the time invested into it. So there's no there's no money for for these studies. Um in 95% of the cases I have a very few studies in, I had in the past and I still have one or two that are funded. For instance, the very early ones about the superficial and the deep fat compartments, um, they were funded. But the funding, the funding was for being able to acquire the body donors to conduct that components. Yeah. And that's expensive, obviously. But I mean, but, but you know, this is this is kind of the, the thing with with this with this field. If um, you don't if you don't have enough funding, which is very rare to do those things, then you don't get the large numbers. And mm. when you don't get the large numbers, you're always kind of subject to scrutiny. For instance, yeah. I still remember the the temporal lifting technique. Mm. We just had a sample size of twelve. Yes. And, and, and why? Because we didn't have funding. It was just privately funded. The, the products and the analyzers, everything was privately funded. Kind of like it's by the goodwill after hours and the patients get free treatment and the doctor receives no reimbursement for that. So, I mean, yeah, but I mean, this is how it should be. It should not be industry funded because... I, th I don't. I don't want to say it's a bad thing. I don't. I don't want to say it's a bad thing at all. I think the industry does a great job, and they do approach things in a very correct way, how it should be done. But yeah. we also have to understand why it's being done, and I think, um, yeah, we all uh, we all can agree on certain aspects of it. Yeah, so it's almost like we need like a pool of funds that everyone around the world contributes a small amount to, so that we can have these third party studies conducted that aren't funded by. I'll I guess. do it if I can be first author. No problem. <laughs> no problem at all. <laughs> but but you know, but but you know, this this is this is an, an a very important point because funding for these studies you don't receive from the regular institutions, from the NIH or yeah. from the um DFG or from F, FWF. Um you don't get those fundings because who wants to fund and invest in aesthetics? Yeah. I mean, what the heck? I mean, no one would ever give me money from the NIH to do such a study yeah. because it's not cardiovascular, it's not neuro, it's no stem cells, it's nothing really what is of greater interest. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and that's where we should be careful because, of course, we rely on our pharma companies to make products and, and, and fund all this stuff. So I think we need to balance this idea of, oh, it's always biased versus, well, actually, no, <sighs> someone needs to fund it, otherwise we'll have nothing. <laughs> so, you know. That's true. <laughs> I was just thinking there's two other takeaway points to that um, uh, paper you did, and maybe you could just tell us, you know, the forehead is obviously varying thicknesses. You know, in a male who's heavily muscled and, and heavily built, it's going to be much thicker 
to you know an old lady who's got no mm. no fat on her body so h- how thick in your in your cadavers is the frontalis muscle normally it's it's quite a thin puny muscle normally isn't it yeah normally in in the body donors um it's somewhere around one millimeter Right. which is nothing. Yes. In, in, in the living, when we did ultrasound-based uh, soft tissue thickness measurements of the forehead, we ended up somewhere between three and seven millimeters. Interesting. So, which is, which, which is nothing. This is the thickness of, of the forehead, between three and seven millimeters. Wow. And you can imagine the lower the BMI, the lower the thickness, and the higher the age, also the lower the thickness because they kind of are related together. And, and here comes the thing. When, um, when you inject into the forehead and you envision that you're only in a certain layer, um, you, you need to understand that there are some separating fascias in the forehead. And when you inject superficially, then there are a lot of fascias that separate the product from diffusing into the muscle. Yeah. And the question is, where is the nerve? Is the nerve on the top side or on the underside? And the nerve is on the underside. So yes. when you inject very superficially, the product might not reach with the same concentration that you expect on the deep surface to really affect the muscle. And this is why, as you said, in, uh, in patients um, with heavy brows by default or with low, low sitting eyebrows um, um, before the treatment, of course, you don't want to go deep into those ones because you just want to touch a little bit, just very superficially. And if you think about the results um, at, at baseline and um, when you are not in movement, so it means at rest, the results were not statistically significant different between deep and superficial injections. Yep. But you need a certain degree of muscle tone to keep the eyebrows in their proper position at the supraorbital ridge. Yes. And um, your thing with time, I mean, it's so obvious, but it, it, it's a good reminder for injectors to actually get pre-photos with resting and animation so when that patient comes back and potentially says it didn't work or my eyebrows are funny you've got a record of both pre and post photos so showing all of that i know it might sound like a silly question but if you're injecting cadavers what are you actually what are you hoping to see in terms of results or what are your sort of indications because the body's not moving? How do you, how do you, <laughs> sorry, it's a stupid question, but just. <laughs> and I've got a fourth paper if we've right. got time where I actually wanted to ask the same question. Right. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe we'll save it for that, but yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Okay. Let's move on to the next paper. David, do you want to read that one? Yeah, sure. sure. So we're not answering yet. <laughs> we'll, we'll get we'll to that get one. To it. Okay. Um, so the second paper is the bidirectional movement of the frontalis muscle, introducing the line of convergence and its potential clinical relevance. So yes. this is exactly relevant to what you were just saying about brow position, Sebastian. So mm-hmm. I, I love this paper. And, and on the one hand, it's like revolutionary. And then on the other hand, we've always taught people to basically be a bit careful immediately above the brow, but go for gold elsewhere but maybe just explain how this paper came around first of all and then we can talk to the listeners about what it means so the the first time when i um when i when i got this idea i think it was in 2013 2014 because um i when i started working in aesthetics i also looked at muscles and how they move and of course i looked in a mirror kind of like oh how does it look in my case and um from the standard anatomical books what happens is you always have the frontalis muscle as an eyebrow elevator. Yeah. But when I did that movement, and I think you can see that in my case, my hairline goes down. Mm-hmm. And then I was thinking, wait, how, why, why is the hairline going down? If the muscle should everything move upwards, actually my hairline should go back. And, um, 
and it kind of puzzled me for a while and I didn't really understood. And then I talked to a friend of mine, his name is Fabio Ingalina. He's a plastic surgeon from Italy, from Catania. And um, he said that sometimes in a patient, he positions dots on the forehead and sees in which direction they move. And he said that there is an area in the forehead that does not move. And I said, yes, I know that. And I showed it to him. He said, yes, exactly. There's an area on the forehead that does not move. And that was in 2014. And then kind of the idea died. Yeah. And then in 2018, when I had um, the skin vector cameras, these 3D cameras, these fancy cameras that the people have, and um, I did, again, pictures of the forehead, I realized, hey, moment, some of the arrows are pointing downwards and some of the arrows are pointing upwards in the area on the forehead that does not move. I said, yeah. oh, let's do a study. So we did the study. <laughs> And, um, and it was very interesting to see that there was really in everybody, independent male or female, independent of ethnicity, everybody had this area in the forehead, which did not move. And so we came up with the line of convergence. I mean, a lot of my colleagues that I talked about it during that time, they said, you need to call it Kotofana line. You need to call it, you need to give it that name. And and I always said, no, why? I'm, I'm not interested. This is kind of like, it's a scientific thing. It has nothing to do with me and my name because it was there before me and will be there after me. Yeah. And then I called it the line of convergence because the two movements converge. Funny enough, now when I present on it, everybody says, oh, it's the C line. Yeah. And people who don't know about it say, oh, it's the Kotofana line. No, it's not. It's line of convergence, guys, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess to explain this to listeners who are maybe new to this and maybe a bit more junior, um, we're taught and I was taught and David even knows this stuff. We're, uh, as you said, the frontalis, which is this big flat muscle on the forehead, we're always taught it's the only thing that raises the eyebrows, which is true. But that's very simplified because some of it actually pulls down which is sort of closer to the hairline. And I've got to say, I actually noticed this. When, when you, if you get a female patient with a ponytail, mm -hmm. a high ponytail, get them to raise their eyebrows and their ponytail wiggles towards their hairline. It's quite funny. You can just you know, get a patient to do it. And I noticed this years ago and I just said, oh, it's kind of weird. And <laughs> yeah, I, I just assumed that the occipitalis on the back of the head is like a bit of an antagonist and it sort of, it has to move if something at the front is moving. But um, yeah, anyway, your, your, your paper was great. And so what, what is the relevance of it to injectors? What, what are you actually saying? What's the conclusion? So the conclusion is that um, because everybody has this line of convergence, this line of convergence separates the frontalis muscle into two segments. Mm -hmm. One segment responsible for elevating the eyebrows and one segment relevant for depressing the hairline. So when you target the area that is responsible for depressing the hairline, you will have no effects on the eyebrow position. Yes. Because that's not the portion of frontalis that's responsible for that. So it means you can do whatever you want to that area. On the contrary, if you're affecting the eyebrow elevation segment of the frontalis muscle, you need to be mindful because that part of the muscle can influence eyebrow position. Mm -hmm. And um, and that kind of is, is really important to understand because when you do something to this area, you will have an effect on the eyebrows. And that means injecting your treatments, it, it can just guide you in terms of depth, the click or not to click paper, if you want to inject superficial or deep. And with this paper, it can guide your injections, how high and how low you can go. So it's really almost like a map based on the individualized anatomy. Yes. And I know that everybody, especially um, juniors, when they, when they start in aesthetics, they would like to follow some rules or cookie cutters so they can get a feel for that. But mm -hmm. as you progress, you realize every patient is different and you want to conduct individualized treatments. 
Yes. And if you want to do that, you need to respect individual anatomy. And this is why the line of convergence helps. Do, do you have any hints or tips to identify where the line of convergence is? Because, you know, depending on the height of the forehead, etc., it, it can change. But I think you said in your paper, it was very predictably about a third of the way up from the lowest part of the forehead. Is that correct? Yeah. If I mean, in a paper, I said it's about 60% of the total forehead length. So mm -hmm. when you measure from the upper margin of the eyebrows to the hairline, you take 60% and there is the line of convergence. Um, if someone doesn't have a, a, a proper hairline, you can count the second we, we have continuous a model here. wrinkle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a second continuous wrinkle when counting from the top. Right. Raise your eyebrows and relax. Yeah. I mean, putting this simply, just look what goes up and, and and then mark where that you know the, that dominant line is, and then everything above it is theoretically a depressor, and that that's you know you can treat that mm -hmm. without risking mm -hmm. dropping the brows. And I thought that was I, I thought that was great. Um, do, but but I guess you know relating this back to how I learnt, we were always taught something really simple. It's a bit simplistic, but basically, put your finger above the brow. And that area is a no-go zone for Botox mm -hmm. or toxin, should I say? Um, and then you know everything above it is safer. And I, I guess as a really, really rough rule, that that's basically identifying that that elevating portion of the frontalis. It's the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's nothing wrong to it. I mean, there's absolutely everything works. It's just about um, how safe and how individualized you want to do your treatment. And um, and in addition to this, we just completed a study in which we found out that line of convergence, if you increase the sample, um, it's not always at 60%. Sometimes it's at 50, sometimes at 40. It just varies on the forehead length. And I think this is also in line with how we understand normal anatomy because um, anatomy varies. So why should the line of convergence always be at 60%? Sometimes it can all also be at some difference, yeah. which is totally fine. Fair enough. Now, before we get to this next paper, I'm going to ask David a question. <laughs> yes, yes. True or false, if you use toxins in the lower face, mm -hmm. can you increase someone's cheek volume? Ooh, increase cheek volume. Yes. Mm, I don't think so. I don't know how you increase volume. Well, we have a paper for you that proves right. that you are wrong. <laughs> so how do you create volume from a toxin? Sebastian's going to tell okay. us. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. So this name, the name of this paper is Facial Soft Tissue Repositioning with Neuromodulators, Lessons Learned from Facial Biomechanics. This is a recent paper um, released, I think, April this year, 2022. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, in short, um, you're saying that obviously toxins have an effect on muscles. They, they relax them. But what I think we we underuse heavily, at least in the Western countries, I know it's more popular in, in Asian countries, is is toxins in the lower face. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I'll, that's my prelude, but I'll let, you, I'll let you explain the paper, Sebastian. First of all, where, where, where did the idea for this come from? So <laughs> this idea was also so funny. I was um, at the meeting of the American Academy of Dermatology. Mm -hmm. I was... Uh, I was chairing a session with Steve Mandy and uh, we were sitting on a podium, kind of like, you know, the important people sitting on a podium, blah, blah. And there were the other people kind of who were, who were giving the talks. And uh, the presenter was Jean Carruthers. Oh, right. And, um, and she presented before and after picture after um, 
she published this paper on the modified Nofertiti lift because mm -hmm. the original Nofertiti lift was below the jawline, but then um, she came up and uh, published this paper with a line before and above the jawline, kind of below and above. So she kind of modified the Nefertiti lift. And then she presented uh, the before and after pictures. And we were looking at the pictures and Steve Mandy right next to me, like, give me a boy, hey, Sebastian, what Steve? Do you see that all her follow-up pictures have gummy smile? <laughs> I said, what? And then I looked at her and Jean was clicking further. And here's another follow-up and here's another follow-up. And I was looking at the picture and I realized, oh my goodness, yes, they all have gummy smile. Mm. And then Steve um, asked me, do you know why? I said, I have no idea, Steve. I left the meeting. And then since, since a while, I started thinking about it. How is it possible that you have gummy smile when you do this Nefertiti lift? And then... It, it kind of came to me that, oh my goodness, the face is like the eyebrows where you have elevators and depressors. Yeah. Because on the eyebrow, you have frontalis as an elevator and then you have four different depressors. But this is also holding true for the entire face because you have like zygomaticus major, zygomaticus minor, LLSAN, all of them pull the facial soft tissues up, but you have one major depressor, which is the platysma. Yeah. And with this mask, they're all kind of connected with each other. And I was thinking, if you take away the downwards pull of the platysma, you increase the upwards pull of the remaining elevators. And then, and so kind of came this idea. I was thinking, okay, what if we selectively target the platysma only without having the risks of going below the jawline to affect the muscles of, um, of swallowing and the super and the infrahyoid muscles and just place a line up here? What if we would do that? So I, Again, reached out to my clinical colleagues. I asked them, hey, can you do that injection technique and tell me what happens? And they did it. They did it. It was um, collaborators in, um, in Brazil, in Colombia, and in Romania, across the world, everywhere. And um, they all said, oh my God, it really works. Kind of my patients start to have increased mid-facial volume. They have gummy smile. They have improved jawline contouring. And then I started, okay, it works. But why do we have increased volume? And then the idea was less platysma pull, more mm. zygomaticus major pull. And when you have more zygomaticus major, he pushes all the soft tissues up and then pushing them upwards increases the anterior projection because there's a structure in the face that's called the transverse facial septum. Mm. So what happened is you inject it along the line here, take away the downwards pull, everything goes up and increases the anterior projection. And this also explains when the LLSAN has more pull, of course, you have gummy smile. Yeah. It's a cheap way of basically doing mid-face filler. So how I haven't heard of anyone actually doing this. How often is it is it being done in clinical practice? Well, this is the thing. Yeah. I, I don't think the word is out there. So from tomorrow, well, well, whenever this now. goes out, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> toxin sales are going to go up. More Nefertiti or modified Nefertiti lift. And um, yeah, I think, it, I think it's such a brilliant... It's so logical when you think about it. But we, you know, we we've just been too focused on on elevators and depressors of the brow. Um, mm -hmm. Have but, you done it, Jack? Yeah, yeah. How does it go for you? Look, I, I you know, when I'm treating a patient, I, I won't do something so isolated as just that. I would have probably already addressed the mid face mm. volume, and I might do the DAO and the mentalis, mm. and it's very hard to pick out mm -hmm. which had the effect. But certainly holistically, they look better for right. sure. Um, 
but yeah, uh, so so in this study, uh, I just want to get to the details. You had 75 models. Um, they were mean age of, I think, late 30s, I think, from, from memory. Um, and how did you do it? Where, where is this plane? Where are you injecting exactly? Just so listeners can sort of get a takeaway point. Sure. So, so first of all, and the most important thing is this study was also not funded. Mm-hmm. Good. It was not funded, not industry funded. Um, this is why three different toxins were used randomly. And um, I, I just said, guys, when you do this injection points in the study, you can use whatever toxin you want. The only thing I want you is to respect the location and the dosage. Yes. So this is the only thing. The rest is kind of like whatever. And, um, and the way to inject this is you find your jawline. Everybody does that. That's and then from the jawline. jawline, you go one centimeter higher. Right. And this is the line where you position your four points. The These first are- one is from the corner of the mouth yep. downwards, which is DAO. And then from this point here, you go in four different equidistant location until you reach close to the earlobe. I mean, at the jawline, kind of like at the mandibular angle posteriorly here. So yep. you just space them out um, in an equidistant point and the injection direction is always pointing towards the ear. Mm-hmm because you want to stay away from DLI in the first injection. Yeah. And you want to stay superficially because the platysma is a superficial muscle and the toxin anyway will diffuse and reach the platysma superficially. And and this is it. I mean, one centimeter above the jawline, four equidistant points, superficial. And at the moment, we treat it with two units per point, which means eight units per site, which means 16 units in total. Mm-hmm. But you can increase that. Um, at the moment, we have not identified how it is if you inject with three or four units per point. Who knows? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's still room for future studies. There, there'll be people going, oh my God, what about Rosorius? So what, what is the risk of contacting Rosorius in this area? Well, the Rosorius is not that low. The Rosorius is always a little bit higher. This is why one centimeter above the jawline. Okay. Because then you're not in Rosario's territory. Perfect. So eight to ten units per side uh, of Botox or the equivalent. Yeah. And what's mm-hmm. the what was the longevity in, in the results? Is it standard toxin results, like three to three, you know, two to four months? Or what are yeah. we looking so, at? So so in this study, what we what we did is this is not a toxin efficacy study. So that means we don't need to go to a three, four, five, six mm. um, follow-up period um because the effect will last as long as the toxin is effective. And we don't need to prove toxin effectivity because there are a lot of studies who did that. Mm-hmm. This is why the follow-up study in our study was only, um, I think, 30 days, I think one month. That's right. Day follow-up. 14 and day 30, yeah. Right. Yeah, day 14 and day 30. Very similar to the click study. In the click study, also we had day 40 and day 30. And the reason why I choose that is because I'm not interested and do not want to prove toxin efficacy. It's not about the drug. It's about the technique. And Mm -hmm. the technique will work at day 14, at day 30, it will work at even longer follow-up and the efficacy will be as long as the toxin is in effect. Mm -hmm. And this is why only um, 30 days follow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just to say, the 3D analysis actually showed a roughly half a mil sort of volume improvement in the mid-phase. That's not insignificant, but it, you know, it's, it's not huge, but that's a lot, I think. Half a mil each side, um, you know, oh. most of your patients would appreciate that, yeah. and they're not using any filler at all. Fantastic. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to say anything against against fillers. I mean, of of course, I mean fillers are needed in certain instances, but honestly, I had, I had. Um, here in the US, a lot of people are doing this technique because in the webinars and the courses that I teach, the hands-on course, I always teach that technique. And a lot of people doing that. And everybody says it's a game changer. 
it's a game changer for every practice because every patient gets this technique by default. They come in, everybody gets this line. Yeah. And, um, and, and the patient really benefit. I even had a physician in one of my courses who said, um, I tried it on me, but I don't like how much volume I have now in my mid face. <laughs> I feel overfilled. Like what? From toxin, you feel overfilled in the mid face. It just shows you that it truly works. And some patients even get their, their tear trough improved. Wow. Um, that'd be interesting. Cause that's such a difficult area to treat with films. Like, that's insane. I actually want to ask my own question. So a lot of people will be saying, okay, I understand you're decreasing the pull of the platysma down, but obviously it's connecting then into the lower part of the SMAS, then the SMAS connects up into the orbicularis oculi, um, sort of in the you know mid-face. So the mm-hmm. SMAS, is it almost acting like an amplifier to movement? Like, how would so, you describe what the SMAS yeah. actually does? So the SMAS is um, the SMAS connects. It's not an amplifier. The SMAS just connects the platysma to the other facial muscles, like to the orbicularis, to the zygomaticus major, to the zygomaticus minor, and to the LLSA. And the SMAS just connects it. Mm-hmm. But um, you need to see the SMAS not as a two-dimensional structure, but as a three-dimensional structure. Mm-hmm. It's the SMAS incorporates the facial muscles and connects the muscles to the dermal undersurface mm-hmm. because this is how muscle, especially facial muscles work. When they move, the skin moves. And without the connection between muscle and skin, the muscle would do whatever they want. The skin would not move. You can see this, for instance, on the forearm. You know, When I move my fingers, the skin does not wrinkle on the forearm because the muscles are protected by fascia. They're not connected to the skin. Yeah. But in the face, it's different. And this is why whatever you do to disbalance muscles, you will also and always disbalance the skin because they're all connected. It's all kind of a unit. Yes. I mean, the reason I ask is because, you know, not to get into individuals, but you go on Instagram and there'll be a lot of people criticizing papers and techniques and so on. And they'll be like, ah, oh, this is garbage. You know, you can't put eight units of Botox here to get half a, half a mil of um, improvement in your cheek. They just don't believe it. Doesn't matter what you say, what you prove. They they just sort of, you know, they just don't believe it on Instagram. Or and we'll come on to your fourth paper about facial volume in the temple, um, maybe having an effect on the jowl and so on. So, uh, what I'm getting at is the face is all connected, and it, it's like those little puzzles. If you move one piece, all the other pieces have to move with it. You can't see the face in isolation. But I think that people sometimes want to think of it too simplified. Mm. I, I agree. And I have to admit, in the beginning of my career, I also tried to see things in isolation, kind of this is frontalis muscle, this is this. And this is what you normally do when you describe or when you teach. You try to break it down, a complex thing, into small pieces, and then you look at the small parts and the pieces. But for the face, this is unfortunately not the case. You need to see this as a unit. And it took me quite a while. And I started seeing this only since a couple of years, that everything is connected. Everything what you do is influencing. For instance, the corner of the mouth, the so-called modulus, this muscular pillar that you have here, has no connection to the bone. Hmm. Why? Because there is no bone. But how it is suspended, it's suspended by muscles and muscular balance. This is why we injected the AO, the corner of the mouth goes up. Hmm. Why shouldn't the entire facial soft tissues be able to move upwards when you take away the platysma? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it just makes sense. And in terms of, in terms of um, different opinions on papers, I think it is great to have different opinions. I think it's good. And this is good for our pluralistic society because different opinions are important and it encourages and it promotes critical thinking. 
and I'm and I'm and I'm always in favor of critical thinking and questioning things because this is what I also do. I question things, and um, and and um, when you question things, then new ideas come up, which I think is great because this is what we need. I I only think that. There are some platforms which are more suited for expressing certain things and there are other platforms which are less suited for expressing concerns with certain um, scientific papers. And um, I think, especially in social media, um, we have this um, cognitive bias. Mm -hmm. So when we receive information, we sometimes are biased by the way how the information is presented to us or or by the um, community we're in. And this is called confirmation bias. So when you have a, a subject to confirmation bias, you're more inclined to align with the opinion of the group than to question that respective opinion. So already when you follow someone, you are in that group, you're in that bubble. And within that bubble, it's easier to have certain ideas which might be less open to new ideas because the bubble is closed. It's kind of a closed group. And, mm. um, and you know, I think I think this is great because this can do a lot of good things, but understanding that there is cognitive bias mm-hmm. this is a form of reflection and i think this is mandatory in today's society and especially when it's not about us it's not about my opinion or what i did in the past my recognition my ego my whatever it's about the patient it's not about it's not about what i've write it's about the science i'm just a translator of the science yeah I couldn't agree more. I mean, the problem is that everyone is on Instagram. So that's where we want to talk because that's where the people are. But it's not really the channel to talk about science. It's not. People have got about 30 seconds worth of um, attention attention span. (laughs) Um, Like you said, if you're following a big follower, you're just following them. You're in the bubble, you're in the tribe, whatever they say goes. Mm -hmm. And whatever goes against the grain is garbage. It doesn't matter what the truth is. So yeah, I don't think Instagram's the best place to debate scientific papers, but <laughs> happens all the time. So I guess we'll just carry on. Um, last paper. Part four. Yeah. So quantitative quantitative analysis of the lifting effect of facial soft tissue filler injection. So that came out in May 2021. Now, ask your question about injecting fillers into dead faces. Well, I was asking more about toxin, to be honest with you. Oh, not- toxin. Okay. Yes. All right, yeah. well, this one's about filler yeah. into dead faces. <laughs> right. <Okay. laughs> so, Sebastian, do you want to tell us the background to this one? Yes. So, um, the first author is Rami Haidar, who's a, who's a great friend of mine. And um, what we did in the study is we tried a full-face approach, a full-face approach of um, filler injections. And we did um, a very interesting approach because we injected first the, um, the high temple then did um, a 3D picture, then we injected the mid face and the zygomatic area, then did another picture and then injected the lower face and did the third picture. And then we looked how kind of it changed mm-hmm. um, throughout the three different injections. And of course, one of the major drawbacks is that we did that in, um, in the cadaver. I, I totally get that. This is a major drawback. But the great thing about doing studies in body donors is that you have the pure biomechanical effect and they don't say ow. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't bruise. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is, yeah, that's not true. They, they also bruise. Oh, okay, fair enough. Um, actually, so so just to go to yeah. your method, I think you had 20 yeah. fresh hemi faces. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I mean, we just investigated both sides of the face. Ah, okay, fine. And these were from um, 10 body donors then. Okay, fine. The mean age was, you know, was elderly, sort of in the 80s, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But they had, you know, normal body mass indexes. Um, and then you did 3D sort of scanning, you know, to, to mm-hmm. look at the difference. So so what, what, what did you notice? What, what was the conclusion of this paper? So what, what was surprising to me was um, that... I mean, of course, the first thing what, what we found out with the paper is we confirmed that when you inject an upper face, you have a repositioning effect of middle of the lower face. I mean, it's kind of like you just suspend some structures and then you reduce the weight and downwards pull of the other one. So it's kind of like, which makes sense. And which was confirmatory to this temporal lifting technique, which came out much, much earlier than this paper, because this came out in 2020 and the temporal lifting, we published it much earlier. I think the first one was already in 2018. So is that technique yeah. where, where you use a cannula, you almost go into the hairline and you deposit a bolus? Exactly. That's the temporal lifting technique, yes. Okay, fine. But but what we found out in this study was that if you inject into the upper phase, into the upper uh, mid phase, then you already have a repositioning effect. But when you then inject additionally into the lower phase, you boost that entire effect. Right. And... And the reason why you boost that entire effect is because you just help to reposition the other structures which pull up anyway already. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like um, when you have a very heavy weight, someone on uh, in the middle of the string is additionally helping you to pull that weight. Yeah. And then it's easier to pull everything up. So this was, to me, very, very surprising that lower facial injections help to reposition the middle face, which was kind of like... Why is it possible? But it's only possible because you did the upper facial first uh, injections first. Yeah. So just to be clear, the results that you showed, for example, you know, volume in different places of the face that you measured, is that just visible on the camera measurement or, or clinically do you see it on the face? Because two different things. Yeah, this is... Um, so So here comes the thing. When, when you want to do research studies you you don't rely so much on the semi-quantitative assessment of scores right. because everybody can be biased. If you have a different experience, you can score them differently. And this is why I always rely on these objective measurements, which I think is better because it just gives you a number. Mm-hmm. I mean, not only because I'm a stats guy and I love the numbers, but it's kind of always better to provide objective numbers to certain um, aspects. But um, you can see them, you can see the volume improvement. And I think this is... A, it's really important that you combine always objective and semi-quantitative. Um, these two things are always important because, and here comes here comes my major criticism with this field, we still don't have an MCID value for filler injections. Yeah, an MCID is a minimal clinical important difference. Right. So it means how much filler you need to inject to see a difference. Okay. Mm. And we don't have that for different facial regions. We don't have that for different fillers. So an MCID is still missing. And I think this is really important because you need to know how much filler you need to inject into a patient that you see any aesthetic effect. Mm. Okay. Um, the criticism that some will level at the results are, you know, you get lifting effects in the in like one millimeter or less than one millimeter in, you know, different areas. And I, I know that that's sort of been, again, argued about on Instagram and so on. But, yeah. you know, sort of taking this, you know, just for injectors listening, we always talk about the apparent lifting effect of 
you know, lateral face and mid face filler. And yet you'll get many, many strong opinions saying that's bullshit. You can't lift <laughs> the face with filler. It's garbage. You need threads. You need a facelift. Um, plastic surgeons will, you know, completely laugh at using jelly to lift a face. So mm -hmm. what, what, what is your takeaway? What are you actually seeing in the lab? So I think these are valid, valid arguments, especially because it depends on what we said on the bubble, on your experience, on your mm -hmm. confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. If as a surgeon, you're always used to have changes in soft tissue repositioning about one centimeter, two centimeters, then of course you laugh about these small changes. Of course you do that because it's just not really relevant to you. But as an aesthetic practitioner, you know that you, even with the smallest changes, change in proportion, change in reposition, you can change the entire facial appearance. I totally I mean, agree. For, I totally agree. I mean, for, yeah. for, for example, by how much volume you can decrease the masseter muscle when you inject toxins to change the facial shape. I mean, the, the decrease in volume is small, but you can still see the entire facial shape changing. And yeah. I think um, this is the perks of aesthetics. The changes are not huge that you see, but the proportions within the face and the proportion that you induce to um, and are subject to change, they can be objectively very small, even millimeters, even um, what I heard, a grain of salt, mm, yeah. but they still can have a substantial clinical effect. The patient will notice, the physician will notice, everybody will notice. And even though it's not much, it is sufficient to have a clinical influence. Mm. Well, I mean, the criticism of facelifts often is that they look overdone. There's too much There's too much lifting done. It, it starts to give people a, an unusual look. So, you know, maybe, you know, this is a, a good first place to start before you subject yourself to a surgical intervention that can't be undone because they can make you look over the top. I so, totally yeah. agree with it. I mean, you know, for example, someone who, you know, a female, for example, who's got a wide masseter and an undeveloped uh, cheek, you know, things are out of balance and they look more masculine, they're more square. But if you just bring the cheek out by a millimeter and slim the masseter by a millimeter or two, suddenly you've created a triangular effect and they look more feminine. Yeah. It's just little tweaks here and there. Yeah. And so, it's not permanent and it's reversible. Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, if someone who's heavy browed and you just target the eye depressors and you open the eye by a millimeter or two, they love it. Yeah. They turn around and say, I look so much more awake and alive and I'm never not doing this ever again. Yeah. So, I'm with you, Sebastian. I, I agree. These one millimeters are important. Yes, absolutely. I, I think, but, but, but you know, I think, I think it also needs to be understood that sometimes um, the eye needs to be trained. And if you're a surgeon and you're performing surgery, and if you're claiming you be, you're a good surgeon, then you do surgery all the time. So this is what you see. Then you're used to seeing these large changes. But when you do injectables all the time, you're used to these minute changes, to these small changes, and yeah. you're more sensitive to every change that you see. So I think, I mean, it has to be just accepted at different opinions, which is great. I mean, there's nothing wrong about it. It's just the way how you express things and where you express things. I think that matters. Mm. Brilliant. Sebastian, do you have five or 10 more minutes for us? Is that okay? No, I, I totally have time. I mean, my next lecture for Chile is um, is only at seven. So it means I have 10 minutes for you more. Brilliant. Perfect. Fantastic. Well we've, got, well, we've got a couple more questions. This one's interesting because I went to the Gunther von Hagen's exhibition. Have you been? Did you ever go to that? Yes, I've been there. Yes. So if anyone who doesn't know what that body is, works, it's, yeah. it's called Body Works. And, uh, sorry, body, is it Body Works or Body Worlds? Works, I, th I think works. It was in Sydney for a while. And yeah. Camera, yeah. Well, I went to one in London. But it was a bit controversial, but I thought it was amazing. So it, it's, it's his uh, 
um, an anatomist, and he he'd sort of did a travelling roadshow with incredible uh, dissections and plastinations and so on. But w w what did you think of it, Sebastian? Like, what was your takeaway? I think um, it's an incredible amount of work that goes into this. Mm. It's it's just incredible the technique that he developed and um, the hours that are spent for creating each model are are just massive. I mean, mm -hmm. they're working two years on creating a model um, th with this detail, with these things. Of course, in the anatomical community, the people aren't very happy about it. Mm -hmm. Zero. And, and their major criticism is, did the people know what's going to happen to their body after they die? And did they willingly consent to this? Mm -hmm. And everything started because one of the plants um, that was in China and was close to a prison everything started from that mm -hmm. and kind of like oh what about this and what about that and of course some people feel a little bit offended when they see that people displayed in certain positions which resemble sexual intercourse or when they see a female that was uh, pregnant mm -hmm. so they all kind of think oh my goodness how can you display this um, yeah. and and i think this is valid i mean opinions have to be respected but i also think um that these days with a lot of um ethical um boards that we have in place there is an, a judgment of and a review of the documents. Did mm -hmm. the people really sign up while alive and knowingly what happens to the body after? Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's always a back and forth. And again, I mean, people can be angry about these ones, which I understand. Mm -hmm. um, but we also have to be open about certain things because our society changes. And one of the great things about our today's society is education. Mm -hmm. Education is available all the time and we progress with education. So why should education, especially of the body, of the human body, be restricted to academic ivory towers or like how it was very, very in the past, only available to very few but now these days, everybody should have this. Yeah. Everybody should have the knowledge of where is what. I mean, just think about a first responder. A first responder. I mean, if you have a heart attack somewhere and you have someone who has seen body works, he knows where the heart is and he knows what the present knows what to do. I mean, it's kind of education. It just helps the community. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. What do you think of it? Well, I mean, from a ethical or from just, oh, just education, I think it's I think it's amazing. Just for the public wander around seeing the human body, I think yeah. it's amazing. I think I think it, I think it's good. I mean, if people have consented and they're donating their their bodies to medical science, then I mean, the amount of people that you can impact and educate on this type of exhibition versus a cadaver in, in a laboratory or a, where only a few people are seeing it, seems like you know what that what that person has contributed seems far greater in terms of just its impact on a huge amount of people. So I don't think I have any issues with it. Yeah, I thought it was cool. Um, Sebastian, you mentioned, um, I think you said at the Mayo Clinic, you're now in charge of um, body donations or, or something to that uh, level. Um, I actually did a degree in anatomy. I don't know if people know that, but I did anatomy before medicine. And I remember that the UK term is bequeathing your body to, to medical science. It, it is, how does the process work? Like if David decided he wants to bequeath his body, what, what does he do? <laughs> so, so there are different names for these type of programs. It can be called a bequest program, called um, a world body donation program, called just a body donation program or donation program. There are multiple ways how to call this. But um, what happens is um, in the beginning, before you do any steps, you need to be aware um, that you truly want that. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody who donated the body to science has to be applauded for that decision because that means while alive, they think and are aware that they will die. Yeah. 
So it's kind of like, I will die. So this is a very big thing in today's society because where everybody kind of doesn't want to deal with death, but we know that death is a part of life, like is birth, like is every birthday. So death is a part of it. And I think um, understanding this and accepting this is a very big step. And the next step mm. is, okay, my body is there, but I will not live there anymore. So I'm moving out so someone else can move in or do something with it. And I think once this decision is made, this decision needs to be confirmed and adjusted also with the family. Mm. Because when you are not here anymore, then the family needs to take care of certain things. And yeah. the family has also always a big say in this, because when you think about a funeral is majorly of a funeral is majorly for the family, for the relatives mm. to take goodbye from the person who died. A funeral is not really for the person who died because it's kind of already gone. Mm. Yeah. So, so, so once this decision are made, then you um, contact an institution who provides a donation program. In America, um, there are even companies that provide that across the world. It's majorly um, universities, academic institutions. And when they have a world donation program, you can get into touch with them. And then you need to sign a form which registers you as a body donor. Mm -hmm. Then normally you get a card, you entered in the registry and where you need to provide information about you, about your family, so they know who to contact. And then when you're registry, then you're there. Mm. And once, um, but but it's important to note that this decision is not permanent. You can always change that decision. Mm -hmm. Some, sometimes um, people sign up in the 50s, 60s, but in the 80s, 90s, they say, no, I don't want to do this anymore. And they can opt out, which is, which is great. I mean, opinions need to be respected. But once you die and you are a registered body donor, then... Um, the department normally gets into touch with the families, gets into touch with the funeral service, and they bring the body to their respective institution. And then the processes start. And um, and once all of these processes are finished, then either um, you're being cremated at this institution or you're being cremated at the funeral service. And then the family can decide what happens with the cremates. Will they go to the family grave? Will they stay with the academic institution? Will they do something else? Do they want to have cremation or some other type of final disposition of their remains? The different options. So it's always um, a very open discussion with the family, with the donor and with everybody who's involved in this. Okay, I've got the paperwork for you here, David. So, uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you. I want you plastinated in the corner oh, when you go. It's a bit morbid. <laughs> Sorry, I'm joking. Uh, two other questions quickly. Um, this one's a contra well, it's not controversial, but it's just interesting. Depressus supercilii, um, which mm -hmm. is an apparent muscle in the sort of medial quadrant of the orbit. Some people mm -hmm. say it's real, it exists, it's there, they can dissect it, they can find it. Others say no, it's it's part of the medial um, opicularis oculi muscle. What, what's your experience? Like, How often do you see it in your dissections? So in this area here, there is a muscle. This muscle is superficial and this muscle is also the press of the brow. Okay. okay. So here I can agree with everyone. And, and now here comes the thing. If you dive deep into anatomy, this portion of the orbicularis is lying on top of frontalis muscle. It's not in the same plane like laterally, but here it lies superficial on top of frontalis muscle because it connects and continues with the suprafrontalis fascia. Okay. So this portion here that is located superficial to frontalis muscle is considered by some author to be a separate entity, and then mm -hmm. it's called depressive supercilii. Other authors consider this to be a part of the orbicularis oculi and not considered as a separate muscle. Mm. 
-hmm. So here you, you have two things kind of, is it a part of Orbicularis or is it a separate entity? At the end of the day, honestly, I don't care. Doesn't because matter. you need to, it, it doesn't matter. You need to know where it is. You need to know what it does. And if you call it Mickey Mouse muscle or <laughs> I don't care muscle, honestly, why? I mean, you need to know the function and what to do with it. This is what's clinically relevant. Well, th well, that was my question. How do you know to treat it sort of separately versus just doing, say, a medial cogator injection? That That's the point. It doesn't matter what it's called. Exactly. So you know that this portion here, you need to treat it superficially, as opposed to when you inject for the corrugator, you need to go deep because that's a different plane. It's a total different muscle, total different separate entity, and so, also total different function. So can you test for it pre-toxin, or is it only after, if they've still got that medial pull, that you might then do a more superficial dose? Um, you can you can test for it. For instance, when you look very angry like I do, is you can see this bulging here, or sometimes you have some some fine line wrinkles here, which are medial to the central dimple of the eyebrow. Okay. If you have these wrinkles, you can assume you have a very you have a stronger activity of that respective muscle. The effective, you need to treat it a priori. And if you see that there's not much going on here, no bulge, then okay. Okay, just leave it, and you see how it comes after that. But especially when it comes to toxins. Um, I learned that um, actually from Jean and she said, um, art takes time. Mm. So you don't have to have the perfect outcome and the perfect result after the first treatment when you see the patient. Yeah. I think it's important to discuss with the patient and approach what the best and most perfect outcome is for that patient. It can be a stepwise approach. Call the patient in, see, assess, and the next time you readjust again. Because again, art takes time and and this pressure that physicians feel that, oh, after the first visit, I need to have the perfect outcome. Yeah. Come on, guys. You don't have to have well, I think this. it's the patients that ex expect that too. It's not just the physicians. It's patients, especially yeah. with toxins. You see it all the time. If it's a first-time patient, you might not get it right 100%. You know, you get need to know that person's face. Also, the face changes over time too. What worked for you 12 months ago might not work for you today because you've continued to age. And anyway, we could go on for a No, I totally that. agree. Yeah. And and it's a great strategy for, for new injectors or any injector. For those new patients, be explicit, exactly yeah. what you said. I'm going to bring you back in two weeks so we can dose adjust, refine, have a look, see what the balance is like. Yep. And then from there on, sure, you can copy and paste and do yeah. similar treatments. But and, yeah, and just a point from a, from a business perspective. Sorry, sorry Sebastian. Um, when you have this conversation with patients, the terminology that you use is important. So dose adjustment is to top the word top up to sort of infers free and that you've made a mistake or you haven't you haven't given them enough. So you've given the right expectation that, hey, you're maybe going, you're being conservative today. It's the first time you've treated this patient come back in two weeks if we need to do more we'll put more in but obviously it's chargeable this whole yes. i've seen a lot of injectors get into this loop of oh yeah top up free top up after free because top it's up. perceived as yes. a mistake or Correct. you missed it yeah yeah 100 yeah. percent. did we get to laurie's question well we didn't no sorry okay yeah so laurie robertson hi laurie um in the united states has uh said you published a paper concerning injecting the masseters with toxin and suggested to inject deep down to the bone um what about the tendon that divides the muscle bellies I love Laurie. We always have this discussion and every time when I'm when when I'm in her office and we work together we always have discussion about the masseters and the result is always yes we need to do a study on this. So Laurie, we will work on on this. It's just um it's just uh, we just need to find the proper pathways to do so. The 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 answer to this is yes, there is a tendon. It separates the superficial from the deep portion and um the the truth is you need to affect both portions to have 
good outcomes following masseter muscle treatment. If you don't do that, then you have sometimes this bulging, this paradoxical bulging, which we also call the walnut phenomenon, because you treated the masseter, you expected the volume goes down, but when a patient crunches, kind of like see a huge bulge coming out. So when you have that, just grab it, inject again into it, and then you've taken care of it. Okay. So, so what it, what is the walnut? Is it the superficial belly that hasn't been treated, or conversely? And I've seen this: people have used too short BD needles to treat the masseter, and they've treated superficially. But my theory was that the deep belly was bulging out that was under treated. Probably, um, probably we both. can speculate. No, I mean, we can speculate about this, but we don't know the answer. We will not find a, a proper answer to this because we don't know at this point. It can be a superficial portion. And I agree um, because you didn't target the superficial portion, but it can also be the deep portion because your needle was too short. This mm -hmm. is why when you inject for needles, you need to have a one inch needle. You need to go down and affect the whole muscle. But yeah. um, at this point, we just don't know. But the good thing about this one is it leaves space for future research, which yeah, yeah. means... I will not run out of business. Well, we'll have to get you back <laughs> when you've when you've conducted that study. Well, I've actually got a final question because uh, you're obviously working with Leone and, and the guys in Holland and, and so have I. What's your view on incorporation of ultrasound, both for anatomical research, but also, you know, live injecting or injecting? So with anatomical research, I, um, I, I worked a lot. I'm starting to work a lot with ultrasound because it allows me to... Um, do dynamic assessment and to do assessment in the living non-invasively. So I think ultrasound is a great tool to do this. For the treatments, it's a different story. We can use ultrasound for pre-injection screening for facial analysis in terms of worse, the artery, superficial or deep, we can do that. Um, but when it comes to simultaneous visualization during the injection procedure, it's a different story. The reason is, first of all, the education than the device, because most people go for a cheap device. You need to go for, unfortunately, for a really good device to see something. And um, and the other thing is also, you don't have enough hands. How many hands do you need to hold the ultrasound, the, in, the, the, the syringe, the needle, and then to palpate for the tissue, and then to talk to the patient to do those things? You don't have enough hands. So this is why it's always tricky to do it simultaneously. But um, in the pre-injection, phase ultrasound can be very powerful and if you're experienced in a in a phase when you have to take care of adverse events management then ultrasound can be very very helpful fantastic yep. now let's remind people about your own podcast because you've got your own podcast so how, how do people find it and what's it about yeah i mean the podcast is um is a lot about um what anatomy is what anatomy does and kind of how research does and um and you can find it actually on all platforms. And you can also log in through Kutafana Anatomy, which is my webpage. But um, I did I did first episode so far and the feedback was amazing. Honestly, the feedback was really great. And now I'm in a process of collecting questions, kind of like what would the audience would like to listen to? And um, based on this, I would structure the, ne the next podcast. I mean, my podcasts are very short, 10 to 15 minutes discussing a certain topic. And um, I... In the beginning, I was a little bit shy because I didn't know if my voice <laughs> sounds okay or how it is. Kind of like, oh my goodness, I'm speaking to someone and no one listens to. But actually, I was, I was very, yeah, no, I was I was happy about the feedback. And I think um, once um, once the information is gathered, what the audience would like to hear, then I will um, I will start with the next season. Fantastic. And and where's your next teaching event? Where where are you next in the next couple of months? 
Um, so in nine minutes, I have a lecture for, for Chile. Oh, very <laughs> okay, we're going to go now. <laughs> and, um, and otherwise, um, I'm flying out tomorrow morning um, for a gig in the US. Um, and then uh, the weekend I'm free. And after that, I'm flying out again to another gig also in the US. And the reason is majorly US because um, I'm in the process of applying for my green card. Oh, right. And um, doing the application process, international travel is a little bit tricky because they change the travel documents, uh, kind of how many times you entered the country. So I'm a little bit restricted with that. But once this is taken over, I'm kind of, by the way, guys, I was never in Australia. Do you know that? No, oh, right. you have to come. Well, you must come. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Sebastian, thank you so much. I, this has actually taken several years to organize. So yes, we got there in the we end. We finally <laughs> got there. I'm so pleased that uh, we got to talk to you properly. Uh, thank you for being generous with your time. Um, any parting comments for, from you? No. First of all, guys, you did a fantastic job. Thank you so much. This is great. And uh, I'm really happy that we did that. Um, it took a lot of planning and uh, time zone adjustments. Yes. But I'm <laughs> really glad to be here. And whenever you want to have me back, we will make that happen fantastic brilliant Love thank it. you so much and stay safe thank you so much bye bye take care bye bye for our latest news upcoming guests and episode topics follow us on instagram at inside aesthetics podcast using the link in our instagram profile you can easily email us text us apply to be a guest on the show follow our personal accounts on instagram and even show your love and support us on patreon 